Good to see you on this uh, holiday weekend, and uh, good to just be with you. If you're newer visiting, just want to say a special welcome. Glad that you're here. Glad that you get to uh, worship with us and join us as we worship Jesus. Um, we uh, really, very simply uh, and profoundly worship Jesus a number of ways, but um, just if you're new or wondering what exactly this is and why we do that and how, we worship by uh, singing songs. That's why we sing, uh, because we believe that by singing these songs and reminding ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done, we are uh, reminding ourselves of him and also what, uh, where the places are that we have to stand, our assurance of salvation, our confidence in our uh, forgiveness of sin. We also sit under the teaching of God's word, which is uh, this particular portion where uh, we believe that God has gladly revealed himself. He doesn't uh, ask us to wander about in blind speculation, but has given us divine revelation in the Bible so we might know what he has sad to say. And so we are glad to sit under it, glad to hear it, glad to enjoy it, glad to be uh, conformed more to his image by sitting under that. We also uh, observe the Lord's Supper each week. Some of you maybe came from a background where you heard it called communion or something else. Uh, it is a gift Jesus gave to the church so that we might be nourished by remembering the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. It, it brings the centrality of Jesus to everything that we do. And so uh, it does not gift you righteousness. It does not make you more favorable in God's eyes. It does not in some way add to your salvation. Christ alone does that. This is what we do as people of faith, as people who are forgiven of our sin because of Christ, we come to the table to remember that his body broken, his blood shed is what gives us that. No man gives us that. No church attendance gives us that. No prayers give us that. No uh, reading of your Bible give us that. Jesus alone gives us that. So that's why we celebrate his righteousness and not our righteousness. And then uh, lastly, we are givers because God has been generous in giving us Jesus. We give on the silver boxes on the back wall. Uh, and I always want to remind you, if you're new, not a regular attender, remember, please do not give. We're not interested in your money. We really want you to know Jesus Christ and all of who he is, uh, so that you might be uh, saved and forgiven and seated with him. Um, we're going to dive into Ephesians 6. We've been in a series called Stand. So uh, if you haven't really uh, gathered with us, what we normally do is take a book of the Bible and, and plow through it. And so uh, what we did in these last six weeks is we've been looking at the spiritual battle and spiritual realm. Uh, we believe that Satan does exist. We believe the demonic does exist. We believe that uh, angels do exist. We believe that God does exist. And we believe that there's a war being waged. So we need to know our enemy. Yet we also know that we have a king who's victorious, who has given us the weapons of warfare. And so um, the church is on offense, not defense. The church is uh, a place where we have already won and will finally win. And so we're kind of in this weird already not yet where we are still battling and waging war, yet being rooted in promises that are enduring. And so uh, it's important that we know that. It's important that we're not blind to that. It's important that we don't have closed eyes to that or we're naive about this third party that exists. And so uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 6 verse 17 looking at two more pieces of uh, the weapons of warfare, the last two, and then next week we're going to end with prayer, and then we're going to spend a couple of weeks just looking at the prayers of Jesus and how we can be encouraged by the prayers of Jesus and nourished by the prayers of Jesus. Then we're going to start First John. First John's going to start, I don't know, probably beginning of April, and that'll take us to uh, probably June. Uh, and then we're going to be hitting Proverbs, looking at how we use wisdom with finances, with wealth, with work, with relationships, with all of those good things, because uh, the Bible repeatedly says, walk in wisdom. Uh, be wise in how you act. And so uh, I've got a lot I want to chat about this morning. Let's pray so we can get at it. Jesus, thank you that we have the scriptures. Thank you that we can read your word. Thank you that you give us illumination to even understand it. 
Uh, So, Father, would you be kind to us in that way this morning? Help us to understand things we didn't understand before. Help us to discern things we did not discern before. Uh, Help us to be encouraged, rooted, strengthened by the truth of your word. Uh, And we pray that it would all be to the glory of your name. We also pray that you might save some this morning, that you might bring some to a saving understanding of the forgiving work and reconciling work of Jesus Christ, that when we were unrighteous, he makes us righteous by his righteousness, that when we were lost, when we were in rebellion, we were wandering, God, he, you came after us in the person and work of Christ. Uh, thank you that you long to save troubled kids uh, and that you love to set as some of your brightest lights those who are on the farthest fringe. Uh, use this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Here's what's happening in the book of Ephesians. If you're unfamiliar, Ephesians is a book that uh, a man, Paul, is writing, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was not always a Christian. He was not always someone who uh, loved Jesus and pursued Jesus and spoke about Jesus. He actually was a very religious man, but not a Christian. So you can be very religious and not love Jesus. You can participate in a lot of religious acts and a lot of religious works and a lot of religious ceremonies and not be a Christian. Um, He was this kind of man. He thought by all his good works, he was a achieving a righteousness uh, through his own works and through his own achievements and through his own accolades. And uh, Jesus saves him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, and, and he shows him that he's not righteous, that he needs a righteousness outside of himself, and that's Christ. And then he goes on to basically start one of the most global, amazing church planting movements the world will ever see. And you'll see a lot in the book of Acts of him planting churches and pastoring churches and establishing churches and then moving on to new churches. And uh, this church in Ephesus here is one that he wrote, or one that he started, and then handed off to a younger pastor named Timothy, and he says, uh, he's writing back to them, he's writing this letter, and he's saying, here are the things I want you to understand. Now, understand the first three chapters he writes to them, is just them knowing who they are in Christ. I just want you to know, you to know who you are as a Christian. I want you to know you're forgiven. I want you to know you're sealed. I want you to know you're adopted. I want you to know you're, you're grafted into this new kingdom. I want you to know that you had nothing to do with it and Jesus had everything to do with it. Um, so he reminds them of that. He warms them of that. He encourages them with promises. He encourages them with just future joys. And then he hits chapter four and he shows them how this begins to work itself out in their work life, in their marriage, in their parenting, in their uh, just putting sin to death and growing in holiness. And he ends his letter here reminding us that if you miss that there's a third party in all this, uh, you're going to get knocked out, all right? If you forget it's not just God and us or God and us, that there's a third variable, a spiritual war, a real enemy that's at work, um, it could be bring great, great damage and joylessness to your walk with Jesus. And so uh, here's what we looked at. Uh, we looked at we walk into warfare knowing the truth, belt of truth, right? We, we're informed by the truth over what it, our lies. And then uh, we looked at how there's this um, great um, breastplate of righteousness where we're given imputed righteousness in the gospel, that we are, we are declared righteous, we're seen as righteous, and we're also given an imparted righteousness so that we can actually put sin to death. So those two beautiful aspects of righteousness that give us courage in our walk with Jesus. And then he showed us how we have readiness. We have peace with God, the shoes that we wear, right? That that settles fear, that settles doubt, that settles uh, insecurities. And then we saw how we wear this shield of faith, how we remind ourselves of what God has said, the future promises of God. And he's going to end here um, with two very significant uh, pieces of armor. One is a weapon, actually the only weapon you're given, and also your helmet, 
which he'll call salvation. So uh, let's look at this in verse 17. Here's what Paul says. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, uh, I would argue no one in this room has to be in a war to know that what you wear on your head matters, right? I mean, you guarding your head is significant. Um, if you've played any athletics or sports, you know that um, contact sports to, to protect yourself from injury, sometimes fatal injury, uh, you wear a helmet, right? Hel- helmets were, were obviously a necessary piece of armor. They're actually also the most noticeable piece of armor that Roman soldiers would wear. Uh, it was designed so that you could literally withstand a blow from a sword or an axe or one of those big, thick batons. Um, so so these, these helmets were not like a little bike helmet uh, that you picture, right? Like you wrapping your kid in bubble wrap and putting the top uh, on him and it doesn't even cover their ears. It's so odd, right? That we wear these little rink-a-dink, see those Harley, you know, uh, Angel Davidson guy, Harley Angel Davidsons? Harley Davidsons, is that what they're called? Not a, not a motorcyclist, but right, they're riding down, they got the little rink-a-dink like rice bowl on the top of their head. I'm like, that ain't gonna do nothing, right? But we try because we know that the head for some reason, right, is serious. It's significant, and, and anyone knows that you can get shot in a lot of places on your body, but if you get shot in the head, it's usually fatal, right? You get shot in a lot of other places in war, but you get shot in the head, it's likely fatal. Um, if you've played a physical sport uh, and had head injuries, you know that they're the most impactful. Now, I've had both my knees reconstructed playing sports. I've had a shoulder that's separated. I've had a disc that's out. I know, it doesn't look like it. Let me stand up here. I'm really just a broken vessel, okay? I somehow make it around. But, but I remember my junior year in high school, we're playing Oakton High School, Crosstown Rivals, biggest lacrosse game of the year. They just brought on an all-state linebacker to play long pole defenseman. He was twice my size, not hard. I'm not tall. So everyone was like twice my size. And my buddy gives me a buddy pass, not looking, defenseman and lines me up and folds me in half like a pancake and I'm knocked out cold, full concussion, wake up and, you know, the whole team's around me. Hey, Mike, how many fingers? Is it your knees or your head? You know, what are you feeling? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I walk off. Coach is like, hey, are you good? I'm like, yeah, I'm great. He goes, why are you on Oakton's bench? I'm like, I don't know. Clearly, I wasn't okay. I wasn't seeing straight. I didn't have, you know, the capacity to understand anything. So he brings me back, makes me walk the line. Tough to even stay on the line. I thought I was okay. thought I was doing well. Head injuries, your head is significant. You can think, yeah, I'm doing really great. Yeah, I'm thinking right. Yeah, my head on straight spiritually, and it could not be. Um, So what you're thinking about, he'll say in regards to your salvation, really matters. Even if you say, yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? Are you wearing the helmet of salvation? And, And here's why Paul calls it this. Because Satan wants to destroy the security and assurance you have in Christ. Loves to do that. Loves to do that. The finished work of Jesus wasn't enough, right? I mean, you need more merits, right? You need to do something to make up for lost time, right? He's really in love with some future version of you. And so if you could just kind of come bring yourself to where he thought you would be, then your salvation would be secure. Then you'd have stability. And he does this through doubt. He does this through discouragement, right? These are two of the most uh, profound ways he does that. Why? Doubt often is what brings discouragement. If you doubt the love your parents have for you, your spouse has for you, your, 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 your boss, your, your kids, does that not affect those relationships? Does that not bring about immediate instability? Uh, and so he wants you to doubt the dependability of God. 
He wants you to doubt the significance of the work of Christ on his cross. He wants you to believe that what he did, or the enemy can get you to doubt God's goodness, this takes away grounds for hope. Friends, you are going to get rattled. You're going to get hit. You're going to get knocked. You're going to get attacked. You're going to be surrounded by half-truths, false truths, false teaching, confusions. You're going to be surrounded by it. And you need to know what salvation is and what God has done. Uh, You know, this is why the media and culture love seeing former pastors or former Christians who start denying parts of the Bible. Right? I mean, and then that what's so funny is you're like, man, why are they being blessed? Why are they getting book deals? Why are they getting so much media coverage? Satan loves to bless them. Just makes it easier for them. Right? Yeah, let's, let's throw all this out there. Meanwhile, God's saying, hey, be discerning of what you hear and what you see and what you listen to. And so there are three main aspects to your salvation that I think are important to know, and I'm going to camp out on one of them. There are three, past, present, future. All right, past, present, future. So first one's your past salvation. Okay, this is when you realized you were a sinner and God was holy and you needed a savior, right? And you couldn't save yourself. You needed someone outside yourself. This is when you realize all the Old Testament commands point to a redeemer that's coming, not to show you that you have to be a good boy and girl or moralistic, but that you need someone who's perfectly righteous and perfectly moral, perfectly upholds the righteous standard of a righteous God, and you can't do it. So Jesus comes, Jesus steps in the gap, Jesus lives a sinless life for you in your place, dies as your substitute for your sins, absorbs the wrath of God that you and I deserved in our sin, rises from death, gifts us the spirit to all who would trust in his work and his name. Okay, that, that's, that's the past salvation that he does in us. This is good news. And so, so as, as he does this, as he does this past salvation, Satan would love to riddle you with doubts about whether that really happened. Is God really dependable? Can Christ really save you? Look how messed up you are. Look at your past. Look at your sins. Look at, right? He'll fill you with different thoughts of whether he's able to keep you. This is why we cling to John 10, 28, that no one will snatch out of the hand of God those who he saves. This is why we cling to verses like Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. We were gladly condemned before Christ entered the scene, and now there's no condemnation for those of us who are hidden in Jesus Christ. So as those thoughts come, as those condemning accusations come, you're wearing your helmet appropriately, remembering that I'm not condemned because of Jesus. I'm not not condemned because of me. I'm not not condemned because of Christ. Um, Then you have your present salvation. Now, your present salvation, uh, this is the time now, right? This is that weird time. Right? We're like, I'm saved and I'm going to finally be saved, but I'm, and, and Jesus won and Jesus wins and, and I have the Holy Spirit, yet I'm still battling the residual effects of the fall. There's still indwelling sin in me. I can't fully get out of myself and my soul and in my heart and in my mind. This is the, the already not yet we live in. This is the, 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 this continual saving God does in the gospel. And it's within this time frame that you do experience a measure of freedom and the dominance mastery of sin. And this is what Romans 6 says. It says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. It's in this aspect, the enemy will accuse you for things that Jesus has already forgiven you for. Um, This is that weird place where, where you'll wait to walk with Jesus based upon how your life looks like. So if you have good Bible study time, 
then I'll begin to lean into him. Instead of leaning into him when Bible says not going great. Um, we run from church when times are hard instead of running to him and running in the arms of Christ when times are very difficult. Um, th- this is profoundly important. And he will haunt you with, you're not loved, you're not forgiven, you'll never really change, you'll never get out of this addiction, God could never really love you, he never did, and he doesn't continue. Um, those are the lies that he will bring before you. Those are the things that he will say. Um, he'll also... Uh, Try to get you to reobtain God's salvation through your works in this season. It's like, I'm saved by grace, not by works, so no man can boast. We all tweet out Ephesians 2, and then a month later, we're all trying to re-earn it, right? We're all trying to re-engage with it. We're all trying to warm ourselves up again so God might look favorably upon us again. He looked favorably upon you when you were in your sin, So at your worst, when you were lost. So how could he all of a sudden ask that of you when he did it all to begin with? Right? This is what he's trying to get at you. Is you have a helmet of salvation that is secure, that is comforting, that is warm, that no matter what assault is brought your way to bring about fatal injury to your hope in salvation, it cannot. It can't. And you have to be really aware of what you're thinking or believing You'll be tempted to believe that God still want, need, needs you to be a good boy and girl to keep your salvation. You don't keep anything. You don't keep anything. And if you didn't earn it and obtain it, how could you lose it? I mean, think about it. If he gave it to you, whose right is it to let go of it? His, not yours. And the Bible says he doesn't. This is a tremendous truth for us. Now, here's what I want to say. Even though those are true aspects of your salvation, past, present, I don't think this is particularly the aspect that Paul's talking about in regards to the armor. I think he's talking about your future salvation. Um, And and here's why I think this is extremely, extremely important. Um, You have to be a Christian to be able to wear the armor, true or false, True, good. One person. You got an A on the test. Okay, great. Merz is paying attention. You have to be a Christian to be able to wear the armor, right? You can't not be a Christian and grab hold of arsenal that's not yours, right? You can't avail yourself to these things if you haven't trusted in Christ yourself, all right? So, so you need to be a Christian. Now, if we, if we were solely looking at past salvation, that would mean that you could wear the helmet before you're a Christian. Now, I don't think that's what Paul is, is doing here. I think here... Because the assumption is the previous five chapters in Ephesians. And if you read the previous five chapters in Ephesians, it's assumed that you're sealed, that you're redeemed, that you're forgiven, that you're saved, that you're his. That's assumed. What he's going to do here is he's going to remind you of the day you will finally and fully be saved in your salvation. Why? Because if you lack hope in the future promise of salvation, you will have zero security in your battle in the present. Zero. Zero. Why go to war? Why fight? That's why Paul calls this piece of armor. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.8. He calls it the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Love it, 
right? You'll see another text where they take uh, elements of the, the spiritual armor you wear and they'll call it different names to, to further expand what God's trying to get at with this armor. So, so here, here's the deal here. Um, the helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives you confidence and assurance that your present struggle with sin and Satan will not last forever. That is a massive arsenal to put on your head. Like, that is huge. I mean, we know we'll be victorious in the end. We look forward to the glorious time. Look at what the Apostle John said about this in 1 John 3. He said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he does appear, this is future glory, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's amazing from John, right? This, this final aspect of salvation is the real strength for the believer's helmet. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You absolutely will be. If you were and you are, you will be. You've got to lock yourself into that. You've got to engage with this, right? This is why Romans 8, Paul explains further in verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. Thought we were already adopted. So we're also waiting eagerly this final adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. I thought we were already redeemed. We are. We get a, a full redemption coming? Yeah. Look at this, for in this hope we were saved. The person who thinks they have nothing worthwhile to look forward to has no reason to fight, no reason to make war, no reason to work hard through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does this confidence in our final salvation give you protection? How does that protect you in the day-to-day? How does, that, how does that protect you as you're walking about, going to work, experiencing relationships, you're in your marriage, you're, you're, you're dealing with the community of faith? How does that work? I'm convinced, convinced that if you believe you can lose your salvation, you will never be equipped for battle. I'm convinced. I'm convinced. <laughs> You want to know why? I mean, if you're not sure you can win, if you're not sure Jesus is victorious, if you're not sure that future glory is real, then all those doubts and insecurities and fears are going to become not little small things, but massive stumbling blocks that will hinder you in enjoying the hope of your salvation and the present warfare you're engaging in. It's huge. It's everything. I mean, one of the greatest promises for the Christian is not that Jesus won, it's that Jesus wins. And you gotta put that in your spiritual stock. You gotta put that into your spiritual equity as a Christian. Right, that Jesus hasn't only won, he's winning. That's why I love Christianity, I love the Bible, because we pray, we advance, we go about ourselves from a place of victory. We've already read how the whole thing culminates. Like, that's why I don't understand people freaking out with politics. What are we going to do? Jesus is king. I don't know. What are we going to do? He's going to win. He's going to make all wrong rights. He's going to vindicate himself. He's going to make every enemy his footstool. He's going to do all that. I don't care what it looks like. I know how it's going to end. 
And if you know how it's going to end, then that gives you great motivation, great courage in the fight. And saying, man, I ain't doing this for meaningless gain. I'm doing this because it is who I am and it's what Christ has already done. So know this. All blows attempting to crush your head and obliterate your salvation will be deflected by this great truth, which is your confidence that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That that is literally what will deflect the obliterating attempts of the enemy. This is why Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you might finish it. No, thank you. Yeah, he says he will bring it about to full completion when? Right now today? No, at the day of Christ Jesus. Praise God that day's coming. And praise God we are progressively moving to that day. And this is what he's giving us in the scriptures here. Um, This is why if you read Revelation, which probably none of you want to read, because you're just like terrified. I don't dragons and fire and I don't know nothing. Anyways, it's a great, it's a great book. Talk to Wayne if you have questions. So here, here's, here's the deal. Um, the first couple chapters are written to churches that are under persecution. What does Jesus write to all his churches? What does he keep saying? Endure, overcome, persevere, keep strong till the end. Why? Paradise is coming. Future glory is coming. That's why he says that. The promise of everlasting reward is coming. That's why he says that to those churches. That's why he encourages them. I think what Paul is getting at is when you understand the permanence of your salvation, it will affect everything in your present battle. When you understand the permanence of your salvation, it will affect everything in your present battle. Um, if you're so busy battling emo- emotions of, of security, whether you're secure in Jesus, you think you're ever going to engage in spiritual warfare? If you're just always off to the side, on the bench, right? And the, the line's here, just, I don't really know, man. Should I go in? I don't know. Is our team going to win? Do we stink? Are we, I mean, do you think you're ever going to engage? No. So he wants us to bring confidence. Look at 2 Corinthians. It's not going to be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4, if you have a Bible. Just look at 2 Corinthians 4. I'm just going to read it. You can listen to it. Paul's talking about how he's a pastor. Life is hard. He's enduring persecution. He's going to say, I don't lose heart in verse 1. Okay? Then he's going to give you a list of things that happened to him that could happen to us and a reality. This is amazing. He starts in verse uh, 1 and says, Therefore, having this ministry by mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Then jump down to verse 7. We have this, though, in treasures of jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now listen to what he says here. (laughs) We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. You're struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to things that are seen, but things that are unseen for things that are seen are transient temporary. Things that are unseen are eternal. Look at that text in full context. Why are you not crushed? Why are you not forsaken? Why are you not totally destroyed? Why are you damaged but not obliterated? And in context of that entire thing, Paul says, because of my hope of what's ahead. That's why. That's why. He, he, he looks at his life, who will ha- had a harder life than any of us will ever have, and he looks down and says, let that come because my vision is on the hope of my salvation. He's wearing the helmet. He's wearing the helmet. The helmet he's talking about in Ephesians 6. He's showing you how to wear it. It's amazing. Helmet of salvation is the absolute confidence in the saving, keeping power of God's sovereign grace. I think this is one of the greatest, most comforting doctrines in all the Bible. I think. I mean, there are a ton. Don't get me wrong. The whole Bible's encouraging and comforting in all of its doctrines. But I think this one is one of the most comforting. We have a calling that cannot be withdrawn. We have an inheritance that cannot be defiled. We have a foundation that cannot be shaken. We have a seal that can never be broken. We have a life that cannot perish. And you don't do anything to merit, work, or earn the salvation. It's given to you so you can't do anything to lose it. That good news? Is anyone here? All right, good deal. So if you're protected from doubt, discouragement, fear, and confidence given in the hope, that is to come. Yes, your past salvation. Yes, the present realities of him working in you, right? The strength to overcome. But but your greatest hope is the end. Your greatest hope that that will come. Now look at the other piece he gives us, the sword, which is the only piece of armor, only weapon you get, interestingly. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword was a feared weapon. In Roman battle, in Roman society, uh, it was, it's not, you're thinking like samurai. I know, you're thinking, shink, like that's not what it is. It's not six feet by two feet. It's actually more lightweight and more like a dagger. They actually wanted it that way. So they could, they could jab easy, they could defend easy. It was accessible. Now notice The sword is the word of God. Belt of truth, we learned, is the written word of God. You cannot take a sword out if you don't know the truth. So you have your belt on, and you have the sword in your belt. If you're not wearing a belt, you have nowhere to put your sword. So you're going to try to say something. It's going to be, right? Like nothing's coming out. You don't got any truth to give the enemy. You don't have any truth to battle lies. You got got nothing worthwhile. So you got to fill up your equity with the truth. We talked about that in the first week, and now we've got the sword of the Spirit, so you can take it out and say it. You can actually speak it now. It's, It's a serious weapon for us, and 
That's why it was always known if a Roman soldier unsheathed his sword, he would absolutely use it. He never took it out and didn't use it. He always used it. Now, before you use it, you need to know why you can trust it, right? Otherwise, why are you going to use it? If you doubt the truthfulness of this, why are you going to use it, right? Just look at a few things that the Bible claims for itself. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. John 10.35 says, Scripture can't be broken. So it's inerrant. It's without error. Rightly understood in original manuscripts, if you want to get all detailed. That's a separate sermon. But it's, it's inerrant. It's without error. It also claims to be infallible, meaning everything it affirms is true. Look at Proverbs 30, verse 5. It says, every word of God is pure. Psalm 12 and Psalm 119 say, it's pure. The apostle John, at the end of Revelation, wraps up the whole written Revelation, says, don't add to this or take away from this. He says, this is all that God has wanted to say. It's complete. So if it's completely true, without our error when rightly understood, then it's authoritative, then it's what God wanted to say. This is why Isaiah 1 says, Give ear, O earth, the Lord has spoken. The Bible claims for itself that this is what God says. It doesn't claim this is what man says. It claims this is what God has said. That means if it's inerrant and infallible and authoritative, then it's sufficient. That's why 2 Timothy 3 then says, hey, it's fully sufficient to provide all that you need for the soul and life, right? And then if it's sufficient, Isaiah 55 will tell you that every time it's said, read, spoken, believed in, it doesn't return void. It doesn't return empty. The whole Bible's tethered this way and shows how all this fits together. It means it's effective. It means it's powerful. It means that there is spiritual things at work, That's why literally sitting under the preaching of God's word, we believe that this is one of the primary means and ways by which God wants to inaugurate his kingdom rule, remind us of whose kingdom we're in, remind us of how we were saved and how we continue to advance and encourage us and build us up strongly. That's why he has given us this. We could sum it all up by really what Peter said in 2 Peter. He said, knowing this first, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Listen, no other book in existence can claim these things or claims these things. Only the Bible can rightly claim to be authoritative, sufficient, powerful, divinely offered. And this is why We are only given one weapon because it's all we need. It's powerful. Man, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you know this, man. When I get my face out of my Bible, I'm like just open prey. My heart, my mind, when I get away from the gathered people of God, I mean, I got no strength. I've got no endurance. I've got no place to stand, no place to root myself. I got no promises I'm remembering. My emails are impatient, annoying, and witty, and sarcastic, and right? Some of you are like, yep, right? I just didn't have my face in my Bible. I'm sorry. Like, that's, that's what you're getting, right, on weak moments of Mike Reed, who desperately needs this weapon of warfare. Listen, and this is why, in Genesis 3, the first battle in the history of the world on earth was a battle over the word, Right? 
So God comes to Adam and Eve, first man and woman. Talked about this a couple weeks ago. He is so generous. Do whatever you want. Be naked, frolic, enjoy each other. Who doesn't want that? Hey, just don't touch that tree. He's overly generous. He's not a God who withholds. He's not a God who's stingy. Out of the gate, he's a God who's exceedingly generous. And he says, here, have all these things. Do what you want, just don't do that. And what does the enemy do? He comes to them and he says, oh, um, did God say that? that? What does he really want from you? Is he really good? Is he really dependable? Is automatically a word, a, a war on the word. Did God really say? And I love this because as long as Adam and Eve held their sword in their hand, they got a weapon to fight with. But they put it down. And you know what happens when you put your weapon down? It's surrender or it's death, right? You've never been in a war likely, but if you put your, your, your weapon down, it's I'm surrendering. So you know what this means? Um, you put the Bible away, you're saying surrender. Uh, you stop enjoying submitting the word of God, surrender. Stop gathering with the church, surrender. I'm open target. You stop submitting to the good truths of a good God who gives good command. I surrender, right? I mean, you're opening yourself up to that. Right? You know there's only two kingdoms. There's only two teams, Jesus and Satan. You're like, well, I don't want to decide which one. Well, you were born on Satan's and you'd be reborn on Jesus's. And if you're on Jesus' team, kingdom, everlasting, forever, don't put your weapon down. Don't let go of the sword, which is the word of God, which is what he says. And this is why you're only given one weapon, because it doesn't simply hold a dagger's power. It holds the power to tear down an entire fortress, according to 2 Corinthians 4. So the sword we have is the word of God, the Bible. And you know what's awesome? In Ephesians 6, when it says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, he's not talking about like random facts. He's not talking about you just knowing a bunch of facts. Right? A lot of us really pride ourselves in that. I know where every book is. I know where all the verses are. I know the Greek, Hebrew, syntax, lexicon, dilexicon. Didn't even know that existed, right? It's like, oh, I know it all. We could sit around and talk about it. No, the, the word word is the word rhema, which means a word fitly spoken, which means literally saying the word at a moment that it's necessary. Like a word that makes sense for a lie that's coming at you or an attack that's coming at you. We're gonna end with this. Let's just watch Jesus do it because you see Jesus do this. He uses the sword when he's tempted by Satan. Look, I'm gonna read Matthew 4 real quick. I don't think, I'm sorry, I don't think that's on the screen either. I was bad at my notes this week. Matthew 4, temptation to Jesus. Listen to this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're God, the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered them, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil moves on. This is what he does normally. You combat him, I'll try a different angle, right? Okay, so then he takes Jesus up to the holy city, verse five, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus again says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil, now he's trying a third route. You seen that? Right hook, left hook, and he just kicks you in the shin, right? Just, just finding every possible way to get you down. 
places you're not looking. Then he says in verse 7, or verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him and the angels came and were ministering to him. That's an insane text. We'll talk about that some other time. Matthew 4, here's what uh, Satan does. Verse 3 if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You're tired. You're lonely. If you're really the son of God, you shouldn't be hungry. God's abandoned you. God's not dependable. God's not good. Age old lie. Disobey God. Have what you want. You deserve it. Live for your own wants. Here's Satan's the prosperity preacher. Just, just make it all happen. Just make it all happen. I mean, why don't you do that? And what's amazing is Jesus pulls out his sword, which is the word of God, which is so crazy because it's his, and it's him. And he quotes Deuteronomy, and he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He reminds him that he obeys God, not him. And then Satan's like, okay, uh, let's go to the top of a temple. And this time, Satan's crafty. He uses scripture, but it's a half-truth. <laughs> Psalm 91, he picks at that one and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Don't you have a promise that the angels will always protect you? Right? I mean, why don't you show that? That's why every temptation is believe me, not God. Believe sin, not God. And I love it. Jesus responds not knowing half-truths, but the whole truth. And he says, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God knows what he's doing. God is good. I don't need to test him. I don't need to question him. I don't need to wonder about his dependability. He's got me. He has me. And then, third try, takes him to a high mountain and says, okay, God promised you the kingdoms of the earth. Look at you. 40 days, 40 nights. You're tired, you're hungry, you're sweating. Your humanity is oozing out. Not doing so hot. And God promised you all of that? God's not faithful to his promise. He's forgotten about you. You heard that? He says, come with me, I'll give it all to you. And Jesus responds one last time. Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He knows that serving even himself, not serving the Father and the Father's wants and desires is worse and leave him more bankrupt than in the care of his Father's arms in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. It's profound. Again, Jesus' response is to obey God. He uses the sword precisely against each lie. This means, guys, that our eyes are wide open to the reality Every time you go, I'm going to open up my Bible. Did you know it's war? You will have 7,000 excuses. This is me every day. I'm a pastor. I get ready. I got to be fed. Ah, shoot. 721 emails in my inbox, right? Uh, let me just get back to those. Now, right? Text messages coming in. This person... I mean, when is it ever time, right? I mean, Lily, I've said this. You wake up in the morning, your eyes don't even fully open, and it's like, 
right? You're just, you're just, I mean, just everything. Kids, man, this, you know, he's sick, man. This isn't going to work. Got to handle this situation. Got to drive here. I got, right, just maritally parenting. I mean, just everything in life. I mean, when are you, it's, it's an all-out war. Man, you open your eyes and say, man, I want to go gather with a faith family. You know it's war to get here? Did you know that? And that's why almost every car ride for you is a fight, right? I love the families. They just hate each other. Come out, hi, Pastor Mike, right? When they walk in, like, I know how the drive was, right? And then we leave these doors, and it's like the second we leave, it's like, where do you want to eat? I don't I'm hungry. Let's eat, right? It's just, it just never stops. The war is just always waging. It just wants to erase what you just heard. It's an all-out war. So putting, let me simplify it for you. Putting on the armor of God simply comes down to knowing Jesus. And that's why we're going to keep preaching Jesus and teaching Jesus. Because Romans 13 puts it in a phrase that's so beautiful. He says, put on Jesus Christ. Is he not your truth? Is, is he not your righteousness? Is he not your peace with God? Is he not your faith? You have faith in the one who had full faith in the Father? Um, is he not your sword? He is the truth. John 1, flesh incarnate. Um, is he not your salvation? Is he not the one that secured everything for you? It all centers on Jesus. Come to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, repent of your sin. It means I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn from my sin and turn to Jesus Christ and trust him. I love being my own God. Jesus is God. I'm following the wrong God. I'm submitted to all my wants. I need to turn from those wants and turn to his wants, seeing him as good and faithful and loving and forgiving. It centers on him. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We need to remember you in all things. We need to remember that you're our armor, that you are, in essence, all that we need. So might we see you. Might you help us to wear the helmet of salvation, even in this moment, with lies, thoughts, accusations. Would you comfort us? Would you encourage us? Those of us that are discouraged at um, just not knowing the truth. God, would you help us to know the truth? Would you help us to, to be disciplined and seek in the word, seek in others who we, we see have good rhythms in the word to learn from them and glean from them and be comforted by them? Uh, would you help us, Father, in this war that wages, remembering that we know our king, that he's victorious, yet the enemy's a real threat? Not to us losing our salvation, but losing our joy and losing our usefulness. Uh, Father, might we enjoy the life you've given us to its fullest. May you strengthen us through your truth. Might we remember through seeing the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that this all centers on him. In Jesus' name, amen.